We ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, we're going to begin reading at the 17th verse, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm Thus, in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, your Holy Spirit that always speaks the truth. We pray, Lord, that today you would give us ears to hear, hearts desiring to be obedient as followers of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those are words typically that one of your pastor reads right before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Joyful words of invitation 
for those who are trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life. An awesome and awful words promising judgment for those that would partake in an unworthy manner. I don't personally know anyone who would deliberately call God's judgment down on themselves and do that when they've been warned. I don't know anyone who would. But that would bring us then to the question, if, if the way you do that is by partaking in an unworthy manner, how do we know? I don't want to call judgment on myself. How, how do I know if I might, might be doing that today, here? I don't want to do that. Well, let me summarize. There's, there's two ways, and it's much more complex than this, but, but it can be boiled down to, to these things. One is, if, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, if you're not trusting in him alone for eternal life, first of all, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. And I want you to stay. And I want you to listen. And I want you to to watch what goes on as we worship and with this table. But at this point, if you find yourself there, Paul would say, you're not invited to the table yet. Or if you are a believer... You claim to know Christ as your Savior, and yet you are living a life that does not fit with your profession of faith. It's not fitting with what you say you believe. That doesn't mean if you sin, because all believers sin at times. All of us do. But if you sin and you refuse to deal with that sin, if you are clinging to that sin more than you love Jesus, even if you're a believer, you're not ready to come to this table. You mustn't until you're going to worship Jesus more than that sin. So what we're doing with this passage today, and the reason I read uh, the Corinthians passage first instead of at the end or right before we partook, is I am, in essence, going to set the table for this meal, but using this passage. Because I want to help all of us to avoid bringing God's judgment on ourselves. In this passage, Paul talks about two groups. The first group that he talks about, he calls enemies of the cross. Verse 18, it says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Now, Paul is not wishy-washy, right? You agree with me there? He is not going to cut slack to the unsaved because he knows he's not just talking life and death. He's talking eternity here. He understood the weightiness of this message that he had. He doesn't have time to play around with being politically correct or non-offensive. He says, you are with Christ or you are an enemy of the cross. Now, some of you might say, well, come on. I mean, really? I, I like Jesus. He's fine with me. I just don't happen to believe that he's God or that he can pay for sins, but, but I, I, I certainly don't consider myself to be his enemy. Well, Paul wasn't the first one to, to make that dividing line. In fact, Paul is following what Jesus said in, in Matthew 12. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. You are his child or his enemy. You are one or the other. You are not both, and you are not in between those two groups. Why? Verse 19. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory. Uh, they, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So he now begins to talk about their behavior, what characterizes their behavior. When he says their God is their belly, he's saying they have the wrong God. They have a small g, God. And their God is physical satisfaction. That's their small g, God. Now, on the one hand, he had already dealt with a group called the Judaizers uh, earlier in the book. And the Judaizers, uh, as you will remember, were the, the group that would say, look, uh, yeah, here's the gospel, but there's something else you've got to do. You've got to, in essence, become a Jew, do all the rites of the Jews and so on. And once you get through all those things and become a real Jew, then you can follow Christ. And... Uh, Paul was unwilling to tolerate that because they diminished the gospel, which diminishes Christ. They were saying it's the gospel or it's Jesus plus works that you do. And Paul said, no, there is no way that that is the gospel at all. But that's not this group. I'm convinced. I am convinced that this group are what some would call libertines, antinomian, against the law. They would, they would do anything to satisfy their appetites when it says their God is their belly, not just indulging in food, although that was likely part of it, 
but any kind of overindulgence in their appetites, no restraints, whatever that God wants, that God got from them. So they had no restraints on what they did. That's why I said, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. They were, the, the Philippian uh, believers, some of them were imitating them. They were imitating the wrong people. And they were saying, well, that, that's a good option. That's how we will act. After all, we can be forgiven. So it's okay to do those things. But then Paul addresses not only their actions, but their thinking. And you can't, you can't really take those apart, but he does say those are two areas. He says, with minds set on earthly things. They had wrong thinking. Their minds were in the wrong place. Verse 19 says, they glory in their shame. That's the insanity of their wrong kind of thinking. Right becomes left. Up becomes down. And that which is, is shameful, their wrongdoing, became something they were proud of, they were displaying. Insanity. They were wrong-minded. And it was because they were one-dimensional. Their eyes were on the world that they were living in as if this is all there is. And he talks about their destiny. Verse 19 is destruction. Their end is destruction. Now, there's destruction in this life. Yes, lives will be destroyed sometimes, though, in this life they it looks as though they're totally getting away with it and enjoying every moment of it. And some would like to say what it, that destruction means is at the end of their life, then that's that, and they will be destroyed. You know what? That would be the easy way. And that would even be incentive for some to say, I'll go that route. I'll just do whatever I want in this life, and then boom, that'll be the end, and I'm, I'm good with that. But that's not what the scripture says is going to take place. Destruction for uh, the unbeliever, for, for the ones he's describing, that destruction is ultimately separation from God and eternal punishment. No relief from that. Now, I want to give you an application uh, about how we look at people who are in that category. Because we see how Paul described them. I told you he wasn't wishy-washy. But that doesn't mean that he, he, he was trying to be mean or judgmental to them. Instead, he, he said this, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. He, he wasn't happy about pronouncing judgment on them. He wasn't desiring to do that. 
He had to, though. But he did it with tears. With tears of concern for them. Not desiring for them to continue going in that same direction. And that's how we should look at those around us as well who are in need of Christ. Those in your, your family. Your neighbors. Those you work with. Pray for them with tears. Tell them the truth out of a genuine concern for them. And then Paul talks about who we are, the other group, who are the people of God. He, in essence, says we're citizens of another place. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body uh, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God's people have an identity. Uh, This verse would have spoken volumes to the people. Remember, they were a Roman colony, and so they... Uh, And it was unusual, but they were granted Roman citizenship. They loved that. They loved to have all the privileges of citizenship. It was a big deal to them. They knew it was an honor and there were privileges involved. And Paul said, you know what, Roman citizenship, let's talk about if you're a follower of Christ where your real citizenship is. Now, personally, I have a German birth certificate. I can't even read my own birth certificate, except my name. That's the only part I can, I can read on there. I don't even know what it says. I've never had anyone translate it for me. I probably should do that. The reason I have a German birth certificate is because my father was in the army, and he was stationed in Frankfurt, and so that's where I was born. And uh, as I understand it, the laws have changed at this time now, because I, I looked them up to see if that was still the case. But, but as I got older uh, and as I was growing up, I was told that I had dual citizenship before I was 21. Citizenship in the U.S. and uh, in Germany. But at the age of 21, if I wanted to remain a German citizen, I would have had to declare that. You know what? That was never in doubt. I always identified as, and if anyone had ever asked me, my citizenship was in the United States of America, and that's where it would remain. Our citizenship defines us, doesn't it? Paul is making it clear that that we either have citizenship in heaven or we are an enemy of the cross. Your passport says one or the other. There is no passport in between those. One or the other. In the early second century, a letter was written. We We don't know who the author 
was, but it was written to Diogenetus. Now, Diogenetus, uh, they think, may have been uh, the mentor or the tutor of a future uh, emperor, Marcus Antonius. Here's, I've, I've shared with you from time to time little pieces of this letter. Let me read to you what this letter says. Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs has not not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching as some people do. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still are condemned. They're put to death, and yet they're brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They're completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance They're dishonored, and in their dishonor are glorified. They're defamed and are vindicated. They're reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. They're treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies, and they are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, the Christians are in the world. The soul dwells in the body, but does not belong to the body. And Christians dwell in the world, but do not belong to the world. Our destiny is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So Paul says, here's the two groups. But then he says this, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Act like the citizens you are, citizens of another place. So how can we stand firm? How can we be strong enough to do that? We are strong enough to do that 
only by the means of grace. The means of grace are prayer, the word of God, and the sacrament. Those are the means of grace that God uses to strengthen his people. So who is the table meant for? The family. It's a family meal. A meal for children of the living God who are trusting in him alone for eternal life and are walking with him in a life of repentance and restoration. That's who this meal is for. It's a privilege of citizenship. So if you're outside of that, please, for your own protection, don't make a mockery of the table by coming when you're not yet invited. As I read earlier, God says, you'll eat and drink judgment on yourself. Don't do that. Let the elements pass by. Nobody around you will judge you for that. And use the time for reflection. On page 11 of your worship guide, you will find prayers and things to think on for those who are not taking communion. Use that time for reflection and come to Jesus. But if you know your citizenship is in heaven, rejoice in your salvation. Take, take, eat, and drink, and be strengthened to stand firm. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the glories of this table, which we do not deserve. But you've invited us to. This is a simple meal, Lord. A bit of bread. A taste of the fruit of the vine. Things we can find in our kitchen at home. Will you set them apart from the everyday use to your particular holy use to give us strength, not in the element itself, but by your Holy Spirit and because of what Jesus has done. And we ask for this in his precious name. Amen.